Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be Genesis 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians. There was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh that what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good years are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities. Let them keep it. 
That food shall be in reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, with a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath-Phineah, and gave him in marriage Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was thirty years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of the famine, two sons were born to Joseph, and Sanath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to do, do. When the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Thanks, Alyssa. Two common themes in Genesis are dreams and waiting. We see them throughout the entire book. In the way of dreams, we've seen them in Abimelech, Abraham, Jacob, Laban, Joseph, and Pharaoh, sometimes more than once. In the way of waiting, we've seen it in everyone, but especially in Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Both of these themes are obviously present in this passage. This scene marks the end of one batch of waiting and the introduction of another dream. This time, by God's design, Joseph's waiting is over, and it became Pharaoh's turn to dream dreams. We're told that Pharaoh's dreams came two full years. The text is emphatic about this, actually. Two full years, two whole years, it says in English, after the dream restoration, and forgetfulness of the cupbearer from the previous chapter, and 13 years after Joseph's own dream. Why two years? Or maybe more emotionally, why 13 years? Well, we're not 
told. But remember this, Grace. I'm going to pray in just a second, but remember this. We are right to think of the words of our Lord. Whenever we see waiting in the Bible or in our own lives, whenever we long for something good, for God to do something right, to set an injustice right, or to end a type of suffering, whenever we come across that, we are right to remember the words of our Lord Jesus to his followers when he said, my time has not yet come. Just as we don't know why Jesus' ministry lasted three years instead of two or four or 30, we don't know why God's timing timing for Joseph was was such that two more years in prison or 13 years after his first dreams was the number. Nevertheless, just as as the end of all four Gospels show us the coming of the time of Christ, this passage tells us of the beginning of the time of Joseph. And here is the, here's the main point for all of us in all of this. The one thing I really hope the Spirit freshly impresses upon us, causes us to hold on to, and transforms us with is this. God's purposes are perfect, and they are never slow to come to pass. For those of you who are hurting... <laughs> For those of you who know somebody who is hurting, for those of you longing for something to be made right, you need to know and see in this passage that God's purposes are perfect and never slow to come to pass. Two years or 13 years or enslaved for centuries or centuries that they waited for the Messiah to come or millennia since we've been waiting for him to return. God's purposes are perfect and are never slow to come to pass. That's hard to hear when you're in suffering, but we need to hear it, and God puts that on display in this passage. Everything God does, Grace, settle on this. Everything God does is worthy of praise in both its content and its timing. He is never He is never mistaken, and he is never a second later a penny short. Because of this, he deserves all of our worship and all of our obedience. He is able to bear all of our hope, and this news is worth taking next door and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray for all of these things and more. God, we we trust you. We're here because we trust you, even as our trust wavers at times. We thank you for passages that like this, like this that show us why it is right to trust wholly in you. Not just in a given circumstance, not even just in this life, but for eternal life. Nothing else can bear that weight but you alone. But you can bear it perfectly and certainly. You do not grow tired or weary of bearing that hope. There is no chance that you will let down, let us down as it, as we trust in your promises. You are God, and we get to see in part what that means here where millions were saved from death by this 13 years of suffering at the hands of his brothers and then master and then prison guard. And we get to see what 13 years of significant suffering was for. God, let us learn from this. Let us see this. We don't always get to know why our suffering is but we see passages like this and are reminded of the truthfulness of your promises and what they might look like. I pray that you'd cause that to wash over us this morning, along with 
the certain knowledge that it is only by grace through faith in Christ that we gain access to that. Let us know both. For those whose trust is in Christ, all things are working together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I mentioned in the introduction, dreams are a really important theme in Genesis. In fact, I'm not a huge fan of this kind of word study, but I think it's important here. Almost a third of all of the occurrences of dreams in the entire Bible are found in Genesis. I think that's significant. Almost a third of all of the occurrences are found in one book in the Bible, Genesis. I imagine this was in part because this is when God is first showing himself to be God and and all of what that means. And one key component of that is that he is not bound by normal means. I I invite you again. Genesis has shown us this over and over, but I invite you again to consider what that means. How often is your hope in a particular means of God to accomplish his purposes rather than God himself. Genesis over and over along with the rest of the Bible shows us that God is not bound by normal means. Indeed, he is not bound by any means. He makes donkeys talk for crying out loud. He makes his followers be able to walk on water. I don't know, kids, you've taken chemistry or, or physics, but that's not normal to be able to walk on water. That's, that's not normally how people get from one place to another, but God is not bound by normal means. He brings life, eternal life through death. That's not normal. That's not how things normally work. And over and over and over, God, Genesis shows us God setting up certain means by which he usually works and then working not according to those means to make sure that our trust is in him and in him, him alone. Consistent with his nature, God does whatever he pleases, however he pleases. Knowing this keeps us from looking to anything other than God and trusting in God's means rather than God himself. Grace to speak, frankly, this is a crazy means. I mean, I don't know. You think about how God might reveal his will to you. I don't know what your dreams are like. Mine are nuts. I mean, they're just nuts. They don't make any sense. I assume they're totally random. It's related to the pizza or something. But but to make a list of the ways that I think would be strange for God to communicate his will to his people, a talking donkey is on that list, and through dreams, that's another one. What's crazier still, as if it weren't crazy enough already, that God would communicate to his people through their own dreams. Do you see what happens here? God is speaking to his people through the dreams of unbelievers a pagan ruler. Again, our passage this this morning covers one of the crazier dream revelations. God spoke to Joseph through Pharaoh's dreams. I mean, again, I, I don't know. I grew up as a kid assuming the things in the Bible were normal. And I'm, I'm here to tell you as a proclaimer of the word of God, they're not. And until you open up to that, you're not going to understand the Bible. This isn't normal and it's not meant to be normal. That's the point. So in particular, God gave Pharaoh's, Alyssa just read to us, two dreams. It's not important right now for us to unpack those. Joseph will do that for us in just a bit. But what is important for us right now is to pause. I'm going to ask you to pause like three times in the sermon and just think for a second. Pause, think, pray, ask God right here 
to give you a proper experience of awe. We need to be awed. We, we, we need to read this passage and be amazed. Ask God right now, just quietly in your own heart, with your own self, parents, maybe pray with your kid real quick, but to give you a proper experience of awe at the fact that even Pharaoh, most powerful man on the planet, one of the most powerful men on the planet, was merely a tool in God's hands to accomplish God's purposes. How can we not think of Proverbs 21, 1, when we read the story? It says, the king's heart, Pharaoh's heart, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Don't miss this, and don't allow your heart not to be amazed by this. Don't miss the fact that without any effort whatsoever, God was able to get to Pharaoh, who was largely untouchable by the entire world, in what would have been his most protected and secure place, in his palace, in his home, in his sleep. Pharaoh didn't know it immediately, but God walked right into his room, right into his head by all of his guards, and in his dreams. It is curious to me that the, that the, the Pharaoh, like the cupbearer and baker, were troubled. They were all troubled by their dreams. We're not really told why. Likewise, it's curious that Pharaoh assumed these troubling dreams had a specific meaning that needed to be unlocked. We don't know why that is. How, how did he know? We don't know. And I couldn't help but to wonder why no one was willing to even attempt to interpret Pharaoh's dreams for him. The whole Bible seems to be filled with fake prophets willing to speak on God's behalf, fakely. It's, it's filled with imposters. It's filled with people claiming to speak with authority that don't have it. It's curious that they didn't, that they wouldn't. Why was Pharaoh troubled? What made him think these dreams were something more than just a normal dream? And what kept these magicians from even wagering a guess as to the dream's meaning? I don't know. <laughs> but what what is not surprising is that Pharaoh would turn to whatever means was available to him to try to find these things out. It is a key fact of life on this earth that if you do not acknowledge God as God, it is a key fact of life on earth, that if you do not acknowledge God as God, as Joseph did, he said immediately, do not interpretations belong to God. All you have left is to look for answers in places they cannot be found. That is so critical. That's a whole other sermon for a whole other time. I'll preach that at some point. But let me say that again. It is a key fact of life on this earth, this fallen earth, that if you do not acknowledge God as God, all you have left is to look for answers in places that they cannot be found. To seek to know God's mind, his providence, and world in any place but God himself is truly the equivalent of, of asking a magic eight ball. It really is. It doesn't seem like that a lot of times when we in our, in our own wisdom look for it in other places. But the thought of discerning the will of God through a magic eight ball is it's ridiculous, right? That's plain. But again, before we get too high up on our high horse, let us realize that with even a little thought and humility, we do this ourselves all over the place. How often do you? We have to pause here. We have to look not just at Joseph and his faithfulness and think of ourselves, but we look even at Pharaoh and his ridiculousness and see ourselves. How often do you seek the, the wisdom of the world? either consciously or unconsciously, instead of the wisdom of God. How often do you go to Google before the word of God? Now, don't get me wrong. You know, go to, go to Google for 
the capital of Bhutan or how many ounces are in a cup. That's cool, right? But how often do we go to Google before God's word when it comes to matters of life that are pleasing to God? Now, now before you say never, I, I never go to Google for that. Just let that rattle around in your head for a little bit. How often does God work, Grace, in you and through you and around you, but you're too focused on other things to notice? How often do you chalk up something to coincidence when it's really an active God? Pharaoh made each of these mistakes, and so have we. May God give us eyes to see and learn from both that he is God and he alone is God and his word is our only sufficient guide. To that end, in the way of a simple reminder, Grace, this, I, I think I, I think I said this explicitly, but I was, I was at least ankle deep in graduate school in philosophy before I realized there was even such a thing as a distinctly Christian view of philosophy. That, that is so dumb of me. That is just so ridiculous that I had not yet figured out there, there's a distinctly Christian way to see every aspect of life in this world. And I mean that every aspect. Kids, this is so key that you get this. Adults, that it is so key that we give it to the kids because we get it ourselves. But if I were to sit you down and I were to ask you, can you tell me what a distinctly Christian way, a distinctly biblical way of understanding economics and government and your relationships, your friendships, your parenting, your marriage, your science, There's a distinctly Christian way to understand science and philosophy and music and church. That's part of what the exhortation was about, was there's a a distinctly Christian way of viewing church that involves a live stream. I don't know fully even what that means, but I know there is one. And, And music and church and art and ministry and everything else. Pick something in your life right now, anything, some normal occurrence during your week, There is a distinctly Christian way to understand that. Do you know what that is? This text invites us to consider that. Pharaoh's dreams are a reminder to us that God is God. He alone is God. That the whole universe is his. And that he alone can reveal that to us with authority. And that he is greater than we could possibly imagine. Here's the next scene, verses 9 through 13. Well, Pharaoh's people unable to help him understand the meaning of his dreams, where would he turn for answers? Well, seeing his master's troubled mind, the cupbearer remembered his offenses, the text says. It is his dreams, and he remembered Joseph. He recalled for Pharaoh how Joseph, uh, a young Hebrew, had told him exactly what his dreams meant. It's important to note, however, that the cupbearer failed to mention the key aspect of Joseph's interpretation, namely that they were from God. Joseph's interpretations had come not from Joseph, but from Joseph's God. And so the cupbearer relayed to Pharaoh, I know a young Hebrew who can tell you what your dreams meant. Discouraged and seemingly out of options, this new revelation intrigued Pharaoh. That leads us to the next scene. 14 to 36. Therefore, Pharaoh summoned Joseph from prison. He'd been there for years. We don't know exactly how many years because we don't know for sure how long he had been there before the baker and cupbearer were brought to him, but it was several. Shaved and changed and having been interrogated by Pharaoh concerning his interpretation prowess, Joseph 
quickly corrected. I love this. Standing before the most powerful person on earth. He'd been enslaved and then imprisoned for years, freshly shaved, and he has the audacity to correct this man that could snuff him out like that. He corrected him. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have heard it said that I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Favorable answer might not be the best translation. In it, he's not promising Pharaoh that God was about to bless him, only that Joseph's God was indeed the God of dreams and their interpretations. Again, without anywhere else to turn, Joseph's answer, saying, hey, if if an interpretation is going to come, it's going to come from God. Apparently that was enough for Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh went on to tell him what his dreams meant. He gave God the credit, told Pharaoh their meaning, the dream's meaning, and he gave him great wisdom to go along with it. Grace again. Before we move on to the next section, here's another one of these pause moments. Please notice with me two very practical principles here. First, because Joseph was certain that God was God and that he was with Joseph, Joseph didn't hesitate to stand before and correct Pharaoh. What would have caused great angst in most, which is why I suspect the magicians weren't willing to wager a guess, because if they were wrong, they knew what would happen to them. What would have caused angst, fear, trepidation, and most was a time of peace, calmness for Joseph. Why? Because Joseph had experienced the power and might of God, truly. And again, let us settle on this this morning. To walk in fellowship with God is to fear nothing else. If you were close personal friends of the President of the United States, regularly interacting with the most powerful people on earth, would the mayor of Scandia intimidate you? Probably not, right? Of course not. In the same way, for us to know God and his power and glory and favor is to cast out all other fear. And Joseph was experiencing that here. Are you a fearful fearful person? Is there something coming up that makes you nervous? Remember that God is with you. He is your God. He is bigger than all of that. And you have promises that even if what you're afraid of comes true times a thousand, everything that matters is secured for you in heaven. That's what Joseph understood, even in part what we now understand in full. And here's the second thing to notice. Joseph was without pride in this instance anyway. He didn't take one ounce of credit for whatever interpretation work he had done or might do. He gave all credit and glory to God. Grace, consider how you respond. Kids, any of you had a really good game lately or or race or maybe you turned in an art project that was, you know, you got a blue ribbon or uh, adults, any of you gotten... Uh, a, a raise or a promotion at work recently. Think of something, something recently where in one form or another, you were complimented for a job well done. Where did your mind go immediately? What was the first thing that happened in your head and in your heart? What do you usually say in response to, to a compliment? Let's learn from Joseph here. Because he had met with God, he feared nothing. But because he had met with God, He was quick to turn all praise back to God. We can't help but to have our minds drawn 
to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 1, 28. Listen to this. God chose grace, successful people at grace. Hear this. God chose what was low and despised in the world, even things that are not. Now, let me pause. That is not some poor homeless person on the side of the road. That's you. (laughs) Okay? So let me read that again. This is you. This is me. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is, this is 1 Corinthians 1.30, he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Let us see this in Joseph and live in light of this. Next scene, 37 to 45 and then 50 to 52. It is significant that Pharaoh recognized, having heard Joseph's interpretation, the divine nature and rightness of it. If you read the Old Testament, if you read carefully through it, if you read the counsel that God sent to his people through his people, and even the counsel God sent to foreign nations through his people, there is one thing that is often in common. They reject it. <laughs> to the point that Stephen, in his dying speech, as he's about to be stoned to death, accused the ones about to stone him of killing every one of their fathers, the prophets. When God would send his, send his word to his people or even to foreign nations, the most common thing you see in the Bible is that it's rejected. It's dismissed. I just read my quiet time recently. I can't remember who it was. I probably should. But one, one king was seeking the will of God. Was it Ahaz? I think it was Ahaz. Was seeking the will of God. And so he had a bunch of these, these prophets that he had gathered. And they all said, oh, yeah, it's going to be awesome. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He's like, that's awesome. Well, the other king says, Wasn't, isn't there anyone else that we could ask? They don't seem super sincere. Uh, I might be wrong, but they don't seem sincere. And he says, well, yeah, there's this other one. But he always says bad things about me, so I don't ask him. Well, he was the one speaking the will of God. Hear, hear that, Grace. So many leaders, both inside and outside of Israel, throughout the Bible, failed to see the word of God when it came from God. Along these lines, again, we see in, in Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, him explicitly acknowledged this. And so here's the point. Grace, it is truly a gift of God to have the word of God revealed to us. That's a gift. That's one gift. But we need a second gift as well, because the word of God has been there for the whole world for some time now. We need a second gift from God, namely the ability to understand and appreciate it as the word of God. You ever wonder why you share the gospel with somebody and they're cut to the heart and repent and believe and are saved? And you share it with someone else and it looks like, you know, you're talking to a space cadet. They have no idea what you're even saying. It sounds ridiculous to them. They both got the word of God. Well, the the reality is we need two gifts, not just one. We need the gift of getting the word of God to us. And secondly, we need the gift from God to know it's the word of God. Well, convinced of the legitimacy and divine origin of Joseph's interpretation and advice, Pharaoh even said, since God has shown you all of this, he got it. God gave him that gift. Pharaoh had a a lot of issues 
But in this case, him surrendering to God, God used to save millions. Pharaoh immediately placed Joseph in charge of carrying out his plan's execution. Pharaoh's decision seems very much in line, though, with Laban, the captain of the guard, the prison guard, and others. Each was happy to receive the benefit of being associated with the man of God without the burdens of actually becoming a man of God. Again, we, we, I talked about that at length in a previous sermon, so I won't, I won't go into it a lot again, but there's a familiar question here. Are you content to get God's gifts or do you understand God as the greatest gift? The answer to that question will tell you more about the, the reality of and the health of your faith than almost any other question. Let me ask it again. This is a, an amazing diagnostic tool. Here's the question. Are you content with the gifts of God or do you understand that God himself is the greatest gift? Your answer to that question is probably the best diagnostic tool you have to know whether you have real faith and how mature it is. Well, because Pharaoh believed Joseph's interpretation was from God, he made Joseph second in charge of the entire land of Egypt. He lavished gifts upon him, even giving him his own signet ring, which was his authority, and second chariot. Look at verse 43. And they called out before him. This is by Pharaoh's command. This is how people would respond to this young Hebrew. Bow the knee. Thus he set him at his Pharaoh, set Joseph over all the land of Egypt. 44. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name. Alyssa said it well. And he gave him in marriage to another woman who Alyssa said well, the daughter of a priest. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Before moving on to the final section, last time, slow down. I've often wondered about this, this passage. I've read it many times. I don't know the answer but it raises a question that we need raised for us. I've often wondered about whether or not God was truly honored in all that Joseph did here. He, he seems to accept near total assimilation into Egyptian culture. It was clearly a work of God that Pharaoh would bring a foreigner out of prison and into command of the entire land, but was taking an Egyptian name, marrying the, a daughter, the daughter of an Egyptian priest, taking on the clothing and customs of this pagan land too far, having children with Potiphar and in naming them, ascribing all of this to God. He says in 51, Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget my hardship and all my father's house. He, he seems to be fully embracing being in an Egyptian here. The name of the second was Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Again, was all of this the direct work of God? Was Joseph acting in every way as God intended? If not, what, what would it have meant for him not to be of this world in this particular situation? We're right to remember Daniel. There's a very parallel account with Daniel, who was another one put in a pagan land. We're right to compare these two men and their responses. Whatever we're to make of it, we can see clear reservations in Daniel a willingness to stand against certain pagan cultural practices. 
It's different. It's not exactly the same. Daniel had more of the revelation of God than Joseph did here. But we don't see any of this in Joseph. At the very least, even if Joseph was all right in this, which the text seems to imply he was, it reminds us to ask ourselves about our relationship with the world around us. Grace, I hope you regularly feel the need to ask and press in on the question about how you navigate life in this decreasingly Christian culture in a manner that's pleasing to God. Which aspects? This is a really key question. Which aspects of our culture are we free to adopt? Joyfully, as a gift of God even, in which must we reject? Where are we wrongly being separatistic and where are we right to draw a line? Where are we rightly living in this world and where are we wrongly living of this world? The answers to these questions are sometimes clear and sometimes not. May we pray for one another in this. May we share whatever wisdom we have in grace. May we be humble enough to reconsider when God's word or the counsel of God's people comes to bear on our lives. Here's the main point for us in all of this. God's power was over all, over every ruler, over every authority, over every dream, over every physical reality. God's power was over all. It's hard to picture someone lower, an enslaved prisoner, rise higher, second to the most powerful man on earth, faster within a day. And in that is yet another expression of the unstoppable power of God and yet another reason to trust in him with all that we have. Here's the last section. Finally, with all of this established, just as they did with the dreams of the cupbearer and baker, things began to play out exactly as Pharaoh had dreamed and Joseph had interpreted by God. There were seven, there were seven years of remarkable bounty to the point where the text tells us it couldn't even be counted. Couldn't even be measured. During that time, according to the wisdom that God had given him, along with the interpretation, Joseph stored up storehouses and storehouses and storehouses for Pharaoh. I listened to a remarkable podcast this morning on the White Horse Inn, uh, which is out of Westminster Seminary. I really would commend this to you if you have some time later this afternoon. They talk about the historical evidence of this exact thing happening. It is spectacular. If you want a a link or something, talk to me later. But there's historical evidence for this as well as what the Bible tells us. During that time, Joseph stored up everything for Pharaoh. Then at uh, at the end of the years of plenty, just as God had said, were years of severe famine. When that happened, Joseph opened the storehouses to feed the people of Egypt and all of the earth. As we'll see in the coming chapters, this marvelous work of God, as we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament and into the New, this marvelous work of God would go far beyond merely feeding many hungry people during a famine. The the sermon title is called That Many Should Be Kept Alive. But Grace, (laughs) this was going somewhere beyond physically keeping people alive. This was going to the point where many would be kept alive through one of Joseph's kin would be kept spiritually and eternally alive. I love this. This has to draw our minds to John 6. This has to draw our minds to the words of our Lord, to another who would come after Joseph, who had a food problem. 
Jesus said to the religious rulers of his day, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses. Remember, miraculously, bread came up from the ground when the Israelites were in the wilderness. Miraculously, bread came up from the ground. There was hunger where millions would have died apart from the divine intervention of God. Just like here, there was a severe famine over the land apart from the divine intervention of God through Joseph. Many would have died. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses or Joseph who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sirs, give us this, or sir, give us this bread. That is, needs to be the cry of every one of our hearts this morning. Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. The Egyptians would eat and miraculously be saved physically. Jesus offers a greater bread. If you eat of it, you shall never hunger. It's a spiritual bread. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What God miraculously did in part in our passage and in the chapters to come through Joseph's interpretation and wisdom and God-given competency, God would do one day again, miraculously, in full, through the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus. Grace, this passage is a picture of the fact that God is a light to the whole world. The light would come through one family. That's the point of, of this story of Abraham's offspring. This light and life and eternal life would come through one family, but it was never meant to be exclusively for one family. Through one of Joseph's kin, God would, as he promised, provide a savior for everyone who would receive him in faith. Would you see the power of God on display here? Would you see it on display once again in this passage? And having seen it, turn in trust to Jesus. Repent of your sins and know for certain that he will give you everlasting life. He will forgive you of your sins. He will wash them clean. He will begin to restore all that sin has broken in you to the point that one day in the new heavens and new earth, you will stand before God face to face as one man stands before another in everlasting friendship.